Grace and peace to you this morning. It is my joy and privilege to be here this morning. I want to extend my gratitude to uh, Reverend Dr. Forster Smith and the whole staff here for their hospitality and for this gracious invitation. Uh, as Dr. Suppinger said, the Covenant Network of Presbyterians has a long and glorious history with this congregation, but what I really want to praise you for is not that history, but for your ongoing support. You are making the ministry we do together with the other 450 congregations in our network uh, effective and meaningful and is transforming the church and transforming people's lives. So for your support and for your gracious invitation to me today, I want to say thank you. Let us turn now together to hear God's word from Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Holy wisdom, holy word, thanks be to God. The first World Communion Sunday was 90 years ago today. Not, as you might think, at some international conference in the halls of the World Council of Churches, which did not exist yet. Not spearheaded by bishops and patriarchs from around the globe. It began in a large, nationally known Presbyterian church. Not this one. Shadyside Presbyterian in Pittsburgh. It was the idea of the pastor, Hugh Thompson Kerr, who a few years before, in 1930, had traveled the country as moderator of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. And out of that experience of the American church in the Depression, seeing the global turmoil of that interwar period, he conceived of an annual celebration of the thing that that ritual, he believed, spoke most deeply of 
of that which holds the church together symbolically everywhere and always. Now, we might have some questions about the boldness of taking an observance celebrated by a handful of white, English-speaking, Northeastern Protestants and calling it Worldwide Communion Sunday, but the idea stuck and it spread, and today we are celebrating with churches all around the world, a reminder of this table's purpose to anchor us, to identify us with one another, sharing one cup even in turbulent times, and we know those too. Of course, Fourth is another nationally known church that has long been a place where we have seen visual signs of the church coming together that significantly included the founding of the Covenant Network. Since 1997, when your former moderator pastor of the General Assembly, John Buchanan, joined with other leaders across the denomination to commit themselves to building a church that would one day fully affirm LGBTQIA people like me and our gifts for ministry, and for our place partaking and serving and presiding at this table. Fourth has supported and sustained a national conversation even during turbulent times. You hosted many national and regional events, including just yesterday, our covenant conversation for the Presbytery of Chicago, plumbing the depths of what it means to work for the liberation and equity of all people, including especially queer people of color, who, as we heard yesterday, experience intersecting oppressions, marginalization among the marginalized. Here, yesterday, we were challenged again to get beyond words and mere welcome to an authentic community, to true belonging, to a place where all of us, in the fullness of our identity, come together as who we really are. The communion table still speaks of that kind of community. And for me, that was never more true than the first time I met a young man named Keith. It was some years ago at another of our national conferences, we'd offered scholarships to half a dozen seminarians. They could come free of charge to share in fellowship and to learn together. And one of those seminarians was Keith. He was young from a conservative church and family, and just in the process of acknowledging to himself if not yet to family and friends, that he was gay. It was a source of torment for him because while his sense of call to ministry was strong, he had never known an openly gay minister or even seen one at work. Now, it would be years later that I would talk at length with Keith about that conference, about the conversations he had that were crucial in giving him the beginnings of hope and about how when Keith sat in that closing worship service and watched as an out gay minister, who happened to be me, though it could have been any of the growing number of us who were finally able to serve openly, Keith watched as I officiated communion, the first time Keith had seen such a thing, and it was a life-changing moment. Taking the bread and the cup, he thought that one day that could and would be him for the first time. And today, I'm pleased to tell you it is him. Keith is an ordained minister. I don't see Keith often now that he's finished a full term on the board of the Covenant Network of Presbyterians, but I can see him in my mind's eye this morning, presiding at a table at the church he pastors in Virginia, a table not so different from this one, and doing it in fulfillment of who he is.
So who are we? Who are we in our fullness? Who do you think you are? Maybe the Apostle Paul can help. His letter to the Philippians is a compact Christian message. It's four chapters repeatedly offering gratitude and affirmation, an invitation to joy in common life, even if we do read between the lines that this corner of the Roman Empire knew its own share of turbulent times. And at the heart of the chapter we read today, maybe the heart of the whole book, is this poem, this song, sometimes known as the kenosis hymn, that's Greek, the emptying hymn for what it says about Jesus emptying himself of his godness. The verses were probably around before Paul wrote the book. We might think he's quoting them to tell us a little something about Jesus, sort of dropping a little theology lesson in the middle of his thank you, and by the way, please keep sending me your donations letter. And it was stewardship season after all. No, I think he's actually doing something more, though, with this text. Paul offers this little reflection not just to teach the Philippians something about Jesus, but to teach the Philippians something about themselves, about how they could be of the most service, about how to live. He asks the community to make his joy complete. He asks them to be of the same mind, the same love, to be of one mind. He asks them to put others before self and to show humility. And then Jesus is served up as an example. Jesus who empties himself at the cross. Paul asks them to consider the fullness of who Jesus is, God incarnate, and then consider how he expressed that by suffering and going to the cross. And then Paul asks them to consider the reality of who Jesus was then, a crucified criminal, and see how God raised him up. He says to them, he says to us, be like Jesus. Think about who Jesus was and how he defied expectations about his identity and how in the end Jesus was not what people thought he was or thought he should be, but who God had made Jesus to be. And when Paul asks them to have the same mind as Jesus, he's asking of them something not so different from what we have asked over and over when we're invited to this table, when we're asked to receive Christ's invitation to bring our real selves to this table coming together in this world, in this community, in these turbulent times, but we have to ask ourselves, who are we? Who are we? History is full of moments where people have gotten that answer wrong, where people who enjoyed authority and privilege have thought of themselves more highly than they ought puffed up by power and causing great harm, selfishly squandering resources, leaving destruction in their wake. And history is just as full of moments where people who have been oppressed, who have suffered injustice, have been taught to think of themselves not highly enough, especially because of their race or their gender identity or their sexual orientation. They were expected to submit to their own oppression and exclusion, missing opportunities, depriving the world of hope and solutions and new beginnings. 
But which Jesus is Paul asking us to be like? The divine one who empties himself or the broken one who gets lifted up? Are you called to a Christ-like swell of humility and submission and sacrifice? Or rather, to an embrace of the dignity and honor and praiseworthiness that is your unseen but God-given gift? I've come to believe that struggling to answer that question is the journey of faith that Paul is writing about when he tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is a journey of self-reflection on identity, who we have been and who we've become and who we are called to be. It is a piercing assessment of even what parts of ourselves are in tension with each other that make us up in fullness. It is asking, who do I think I am? I love the parts of my work with the Covenant Network that involve coming to places like Fourth Presbyterian Church. My 11 years doing this work have been a rewarding time of seeing the church's progress in becoming more inclusive of LGBTQIA people, winning votes, changing policies, seeing new leaders emerge. But at times, I've got to tell you, this work is also heart-wrenching. The hard parts of this work usually start with a phone call or an email from a person whose life is in a crisis. Sometimes it's a very public crisis, sometimes the crisis is known only to them, but almost always it's a crisis that involves their identity. It's a crisis about who they think they are and who other people think they are. There's the pastor in the middle of a long-term successful pastorate who, though presenting to the world as a man, has for years understood herself to be a woman, but cannot imagine a scenario where they could share that honestly with the people of their church, even though these people are wonderful and loving. There's another pastor who, though a man in a faithful monogamous marriage to a woman, acknowledged to colleagues and to youth group parents that he was bisexual and whose ministry was over in that place in a flurry of false rumors and misunderstanding within six months. There's the elder in a church who, upon telling her pastor that she identified as female and coming to church wearing a dress one Sunday, received a visit from the pastor and his wife who prayed over her without her consent for what they called healing. There are a lot more of these stories, all of them in the last few years, after the Presbyterian Church voted to change policies to theoretically be more inclusive, more welcoming of all. Over and over, the church has the opportunity to help people understand who they are as children of God, as people made by God, as they are, And over and over, we as society and as church struggle to do this right. On the one hand, we understand more than ever about how elements of our identity shape us, 
how our racial and ethnic background shapes us, how our innate sexual orientation and gender identity go beyond our choosing or preference, how cultural constructs have a hold on how we see ourselves and find our place in the world. Yet every week, the lives of people are afflicted by the painful realities of our day, dismissive talk of identity politics that minimizes real pain and downplays authentic struggle. Communities that find themselves unable to speak up in their own defense, elbowed out of their place at the table, even in so-called progressive churches, made to settle for crumbs but not bread, water but not wine. It doesn't have to be this way. But for it to stop, all of us, including those of us who are not L or G or B or T or Q or black or indigenous or Spanish speaking or neurodiverse or living with a disability, all of us have to do our own wrestling with our identity, with who we are. For it to stop, we must all ask what to do with these selves that we are, all of ourselves in our fullness. And it is a question of how to honor what has been entrusted to us in these bodies and these spirits. Only when we fully understand who we are do we know what needs to be emptied. Only when we know our mind can we let that be the same one that was in Christ. So friends, what in your identity is it time to empty? What in your identity is it time to lift up? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. It seems like a lot to ask, but I think it's our first step toward freedom, toward liberation, toward resurrection. Where do you think of yourself most highly? We might ask ourselves, is it more highly than we ought? Are we considering our power something to be grasped, our abilities something to be exploited, our faith a point of pride, our accomplishments something we deserve? And if we emptied some of that, it, if we gave up our seat at one of the many tables we occupy, if we devoted those energies to something that brought us no gain but instead benefited another, if in the quiet of prayer or the noise of the assembly we humbled ourselves even for a moment and listened rather than spoke, who else might be lifted up? Or, where do you find yourself bent and broken? Which of your yearnings and self-understandings have already left you empty? Where have you become enslaved by other people's definitions of you? What refrain that plays in your head each day is crucifying you? What part of your identity is in need of being raised up and celebrated and given a new and honored name? In a moment at this table, I'll speak the words, great is the mystery of faith. And at other tables at almost exactly the same time, so will Keith in Virginia, so will the pastor who is by and serving a new congregation now, so will the pastor whose congregation does not know that she is a she.
And churches large and small in the north and south and east and west will sing in response, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Friends, may the same mind that was in Christ be in us. May our arrogance and independence die. May our hope and confidence in who God has made us rise. And by God's Spirit, may we know exactly who we are again and again and always until Christ comes. Amen.